1: Jason Kelly here in Miami. We're here at Soho Studios. It's the Bloomberg Power Players Summit. An exciting afternoon leading up to the big game. We're talking. All about the business of sports. And coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to hear from my co-host, Carol Master. She's going to be taking the stage with a number of players, current and former, across some sports. We've got Jay Williams, used to play for the Chicago Bulls, now a broadcaster. We've got Ovi Mahaley; He is a former all-pro fullback for the Atlanta Falcons. Go Falcons. And Paul Rabel, friend of this show, he is currently playing in the league that he created, the Premier Lacrosse League. And Najee Good, he is a linebacker for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, They're talking about their business. They're talking about the business of their leagues and of their sports. And just to give you a sense of where we are, we're in this sort of corner of downtown Miami where... A lot is happening, and obviously the city is really bustling right now with the Super Bowl. But as you move around Miami, you do see this city that is in transition to some extent. It's wildly diverse, uh, such an international city uh, in many ways. You've got a lot of people sort of gravitating toward this new downtown area. We spent the last couple days over on Miami Beach at the Miami Convention Center. That, of course, is where all the media are gathered in anticipation. You know, and speaking with Brian Billick and others uh, who were there, Brian Billick, of course, the Super Bowl winning coach of the Baltimore Ravens, Joe Theismann, uh, winning quarterback, Super Bowl winning quarterback. You know, those are the sorts of folks that are making their way around Jerome Bettis. uh, We spoke with him as well about his business ventures, as well as the future of the league. We talked a lot about diversity or lack thereof in hiring at the highest levels of head coaching. And he had some ideas that he said he's going to put to Roger Goodell. So those are the sorts of folks who were here in Miami. Uh, And at our event, we're really focusing in on the key issues related to the business and the business of sports, not just football. Obviously uh, that is top of mind uh, here this weekend. But when you think about the newly empowered athlete, You think about, especially in the NBA, and we talked about this on an earlier panel, you think about Chris Paul, you think about LeBron James, you think about the late Kobe Bryant and the power that they had with their brands, their ability to go, and Carol was saying this a few minutes ago, directly to the consumer and directly to the fan. I'm gonna take you right over to Carol Masser now. She has a lineup of former and current players. Here we go. So special.
0: welcome, welcome. Um, I've been excited about this panel. All right, so we're talking about the athletes' competitive edge, and I'm going to kind of go through each of you, and then we'll, we'll kind of roundtable some things. Um, Paul, I want to start with you. We've spent a lot of time with you at Bloomberg, and starting a new sports league, I think in the words you said to us, it's a heavy lift. But it's incredible. You had Alibaba Josai backing you. Um, It's pretty incredible. You co-founded it with your brother, Mike. Heavy lift, why'd you do it? Uh,
2: I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Heavy lift, I I wasn't as creative in my response as as I uh, maybe would have hoped to have been. But heavy lift, we could probably all identify with is what we do, starting at least on the field and on the court, in the weight room, uh, so that... I think work ethic translates into what a lot of athletes do in the boardroom. And for me, different than my peers here, I have been playing for the lion's share of my athletic career, a sport that is outside of the core four sports that are consumed in the marketplace. And it was my passion, just like their respective sports are theirs. And when you get an opportunity to be one of the best at it, at whatever it is that you do, and you continue to move from high school to college, and then in my case, pro, uh, it became very apparent that uh, the professional opportunity in lacrosse wasn't there, yet it could have been, based on, I think, what we're going to talk about in the subject matter today, which is the advent of new technology, new media, uh, relative startup costs going down, opportunity then going up, uh, and, and educational um, uh, kind of swing in amongst athletes and, and the opportunity to then uh, leverage platform and, and do something that is intellectually stimulating, that can impact the economy and impact a, your subset of, of colleagues. And in my case, it was, hey, uh, not only do I want to do something that I think our sport deserves in lacrosse and leverage all those modern tools to get there, but it can materially impact the the professional career of my peers um, it was a heavy lift because starting a league from scratch is almost unimaginable. There are so many nuances from, you know, legal to marketing to fundraising to, to brand building to player contracts to venue negotiations to sponsorship agreements that all have to be in place for it to start. And the last thing I'll say is different than, you know, building a SaaS company or any other product or service. From the ground up you can delay your launch until you're perfectly set to go to market in a sports league we had to negotiate all those venues build our player contracts have our media rights deal with nbc and start on june 1st 2019 so right. there was no delaying of that so you, we were literally our feet weren't against the fire we were in the fire building this thing
0: right you gotta commit and go Jay, I want to bring you in. Speaking of um, de- um, heavy lifts, Jason, New York Times a few years ago, and I, if you guys could quiet down because I, I want to read this. Jason, you are high school All-American, national player of the year, national champion at Duke, number two overall in the NBA draft selection. It all came to an end in June of 2003. You had a motorcycle accident. It put you in intensive care for five weeks. You watched on TV as your team, the Chicago Bulls, they drafted your replacement. You were on your back for months at a time. You didn't even know if you were gonna walk again. I mean, this was unbelievable. Your leg held together by 100 staples, various metal metal contraptions. Your comeback took years, and yet you did. You've reinvented yourself. You're having your second act. You're an ESPN analyst. You're a co-founder in a company. Um, Tell us about what you learned as an athlete that helped you get through all this and get here.
3: Yeah. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. I hope that I can have a third, a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth act. Yeah. Um, I think by the current events that we've all experienced this past week, I think we all have a, there's a level of appreciation that comes with the opportunity that we're provided. And I think for me personally, Uh, we talk about risk mitigation with a lot of things you do when you're young and you're giving a lot of money and the thing that makes athletes great is their competitive edge for me I came from an environment in which we were very team oriented but the team I got drafted to was a bad team so you had a lot of individuals on a bad team and I had never been through that experience um, because I was used to being collective um, as a unit and that led me to riding motorcycle and that led me to be in hospital but I, I think the way I was able to reinvent and I think you see a lot of companies that are able to do this as well, is when you start owning your story. I think for a long time I tried to stiff arm my story and try to make it not a part of who I was. But as I have a scar that runs from my ankle all the way up to my high thigh, uh, for the first you know, year of my life I would always complain about a scar until I realized that I still have my damn leg. And having my leg is something to be appreciative about. And then I started hearing other people's stories about whether you're starting a franchise or whether you're starting a league or whether you have a data company, whatever it might be, the startup process of it. And I recognized that there are troubles that we all go through in that startup process of whatever industry that you're currently in. So I realized that other people had accidents in other forms or fashions of their life. And I was like, well, I think a way I can connect myself to other people is talk openly about my accident, about what I learned through my experiences about how I tried to reinvent myself, and that made the connectivity so much easier for me to relate and people to relate to me about my story. And I think by doing that, I started to build out my personal board about people that I think held themselves to higher standards in different verticals, business, being a dad now, uh, being a husband. And I started surrounding myself with people that I thought could help me get to the aspirational places that I wanted to be.
0: I want to bring in Najee. Um, you're balancing both kind of your first and second act. You're still playing. Paul's still playing. Um, but what's it like to balance that with creating a company and trying to build that out as well? And talk to us a little bit about VPO.
4: Um, yeah, so VPO is a monetization technology. We monetize any digital software and through pictures and video. And for me personally, um, balancing the two has not been that difficult because of the behavior that we perform in the company and what I do on the football field, Um, similar to what we are able to provide for the fans for a better fan experience is the same thing that I see every day Um, and that is reluctant to trust, teamwork and leadership and in those three entities with trust, just like in our business, you know, you have trust in your teammates, you have teamwork and the cohesion on the football field and you have leadership and with us working with existing content optimizing the fan experience by allowing fans to directly connect to better stories you know we are able to do those things seamlessly and i'm able to perform at a high level every sunday that i get to approach the game and it's allowed me to still play and build this company as well as actually you know prepare every day on the football field
0: um and Ovia, i want to bring you in too because you played for the ravens you're all pro with the falcons you met ted turner <laughs> And his daughter and kind of your world tra- changed and sustainability, through a couple of different steps, became really important to you. Uh,
5: absolutely. I'm um, truly honored to really, check, 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 Here. all right, gotcha. So I'll say I was truly honored when I got to the Falcons, I was, um, you know, I was blessed to be the, the highest paid fullback in NFL history at the time. And that was something that stuck with me and people kind of knew me for that, but I didn't want to just be the highest paid, I wanted to be the best and I wanted to be the most influential with that platform. And one of the things that um, occurred around a similar time where I got a chance to meet Ted Turner and his daughter was that our kids were, me and my wife's kids were born severely premature. Um, they couldn't leave the NICU, couldn't leave the hospital until the air quality in Atlanta got, got better. And I wasn't big on air quality or pollution or environment or sustainability, it just wasn't my thing. But when it affects your kids, when it has a chance to you know, take out the people that you love the most, it, it makes you as a father realize that you gotta do more than just play ball, you know, live life and keep it moving. So I started my foundation where we you know, educate and inspire the next generation of environmental leaders. We, do, uh, we have a comic book called Gridiron Green where we use the sustainable development goals that United Nations and UNICEF have created as a part of our uh, curriculum. We also have a green tailgate initiative where we teach sports fans. If you're going to tailgate, do so in an environmentally responsible way. We also have a speaker series where we teach um, communities of color about green jobs. Because the crazy thing is that communities of color are disproportionately affected by the environmental, by climate crisis, but they're, they don't have the opportunity to, be, to take part in the green economy. So sports is that wonderful connector that has the ability to tell a story, to resonate with people, and to really You know give people the opportunity to make green by going green and it's something that we've been excited to do at my foundation and something we're gonna keep on doing
0: you know what i'd love to do is throw it out to all of you is what is it about what you've learned either playing the game um playing on the field what is it the traits that you got in doing that that have really made a difference in going out on your own starting a business or creating a new league what is it that you see it kind of maybe makes you different from other business people. What is it that maybe gives you the advantage? I'm curious, Ovi, let's start with you.
5: I mean, well, well, what it is is that, you know, I'm a fullback. Uh, I don't know if you guys know what fullbacks is, are, (laughs) but fullbacks we block for our running backs and our our quarterbacks. And uh, I've lived my whole life or the majority of my football life as always – you know, in the background. That's fine. We're, we're blue-collar workers. Like, if I challenge the audience to name, like, five fullbacks, I guarantee you 99% of you guys couldn't even name five fullbacks. And so we're, we're more of, you know, the the glue that holds the team together. Yeah. And being able to be comfortable in your position, to know your role, that's something that has really allowed me in my business uh, career. I, my, my dad is a, um, a, a physician. My parents are Nigerian immigrants. And... They really instilled in us uh, that work ethic. Uh, my dad was like either doctor, lawyer, engineer. All immigrant families, doctor, lawyer, engineer. Football wasn't even his thing. <laughs> he, he wasn't too excited about football. He's okay <laughs> now, though. He's okay now. He's, he's good now. But it, that, that work ethic that he taught me and understanding how to play your role has right. helped me in my medical sales business and the work
2: of my foundation.
0: Paul, any thoughts? Or any of you, please. Yeah. Please.
2: yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's a great question that we think about as athletes pretty regularly. And I would say that it's highly bespoke to any individual in any industry. Uh, I would would venture to guess that pro athletes, by and large, the the bulk of them have an incredible work ethic to what you had said, and, and the ability to go to hell and back. And that mindset that's cultivated at an early age, enduring physical pain and a lot of mental pain, Uh, is unique to sport, but there are plenty of executives and young analysts in all industries that have incredible competitive spirit and work ethic too. So it's not exclusive to athletes, that's just one trait. What I found though is shared amongst a lot of other athletes that I've uh, seen cross over in the business world, sometimes while playing, and then in many cases when they're done, is the ability to critically think. So they're critical thinkers. Uh, The translation starts in practice. So the best athletes in the world, they understand at an early age that team practice is only the starting block. And what they do is they go to the backyard, they play basketball, they imagine 10 other people on the court. They're creative and they're thinking critically about ways that they can build their skill so that they can out-compete their competitors, and that skill translate and translated for me in business is to be able to take everything that's in front of me, not accept anything at face value, ask questions, think critically around ways that we can innovate or improve that process, and then apply it immediately. And I think that's the last thing before I'll, before I'll pass it over to Jay is, is the, the ability to move very fast, come up with an idea and implement it, is part of what we do in sports on a weekly basis. We play a game every week. We assess whether we win or lose. We look at the updated scatter report and we change. And in business, especially with very mature companies, that changing cycle is sometimes six to 18 months. In sports, it's every week. And that's why a lot of athletes get into the startup space because they're used to that velocity.
3: Yeah, I would say, I think um, being an athlete, you're very solutions oriented. And being an athlete doesn't always translate to business all the time. You know, I was only an athlete in the NBA for one year. I've been more on the corporate side than I have on the athlete side. I mean, my first four or five years at ESPN, I made $35,000, all right? So I think the ability to communicate from being a point guard was something that was critical because just like Paul alluded to, you have to be able to communicate in real time to people, understanding what their personality traits are, to get them to buy into something bigger than themselves in order for the ultimate goal for the team which is to win you know we do a show uh with kevin Durant and rich climbing called the boardroom that we license back to espn and it's been amazing to sit down with all these individual athletes to understand how they go about themselves as a business i think today the landscape has changed drastically first off the money has changed right i'll be curious to see what the highest fullback gets paid in today's game as a pair as opposed to what you got paid but i think now even from a risk mitigation perspective I mean, you're thinking about yourself as a business. It actually led me to become a partner in an insurance company with Epic Insurance because now you're looking at all the different verticals of your business, from yourself as a brand to the cyberspace, you know, it's happening around this weekend. Right. You know, even from the investment fraud space, you have to look at all the different aspects of yourself because now you are an international brand that can parlay into equity sticks in companies, that can parlay into brand endorsement deals or into creating your own brand itself.
0: Wait, I I'm going to uh, ask, I've got this incredible panel up here, and it's really hard to hear. So could I just ask you to just simmer down a little bit? Thank you.
4: All for you, good to go. <laughs> yeah, I would like to add that um, one of the things that's been unique in my career playing middle linebacker, um, you the signal caller, we get to speak directly to the heads of everyone that involves the game. And in business, uh, something that we do uniquely with VPO is that we get to speak to all of the sides of business from the front office perspective to the football side, to the fan side, and provide the best fan experience at the optimal time, at the peak moment of interest. And being a great leader and being a middle linebacker the defense, playing on defenses and you know, thinking about what goes on in the game... As a teammate and as a leader, you enter this flow during a game, just like you do in business. You enter this flow of ecstasis where you have to be a cohesive machine. Right. And in football, there's 11 parts. And, you know, in lacrosse and basketball, there's five. And then, you know, you understand that being a fullback, there's you, each, each person has a specific job to do on each play to optimize the output of it. And when you do that job the right way, there's always something that you continue to tweak and you continue to change and you continue to do better as you progress through each entire play. And it's similar to the cycles in business. As you go through business and as we extend ourselves and as you look at content for us specifically, we like to find out different peak moments of interest, and in my sense, circumstances standpoint, I actually get to see those while we're still playing, while you, you, know, you get to identify the offense, you get to see what fans, you get to see what vendors, you get to see what owners and front office people like to identify with, and they enter that flow of ecstasis. And if you're able to pull them into that and capitalize on it, that's what makes your business better.
0: Chris, go ahead. I have one,
4: one more thing to add to
2: a great question, which is, in pro sports, the reason why we're all here the business of sports has enhanced. it's so dynamic, right There's gaming, there's eSports, there's a corporate sponsorship model that's evolved, media rights has taken over, dynamic ticketing pricing, and so it's gotten very attractive and why we have so many sophisticated business people entering sports, but think about players as this: whether it's a five-year, 10-year or 20-year career, you're an understudy to that business. We have exposure every day to the ownership groups, to the GMs, to the team presidents, and a lot of athletes are very aware and smart about that, and they're listening. So whether they realize it at an early age or when they start becoming a veteran, they're like, oh, I, I, I get it now. And so put it this way, at, at the core sport level, these athletes have exposure to multibillion dollars businesses and how these businesses are functioning.
0: So having, oh, no, no, no go was- ahead. I was going to say
2: one thing that I think uh, we all
5: kind of touched on that's extremely important, especially in the business world, is just that level of teamwork that's necessary. Because as we've all played our roles, we have to be able to know when to give, when to get, when to add a little more and play the role as a team. When um, I got out of the NFL and entered the business space and even on the philanthropic side, it, it was something that came natural to me. Um, and finding solutions as well extremely important. When it comes to the climate crisis, big problem needs a big solution, and I've been, you know, blessed to talk to the NAACP Environmental Justice Program, talking to Green Sports Lines, Keep America Beautiful, and we're we'll all get our heads together with uh, NoMePA and other great partners and try to figure out what can be that key to spread the word. And it's great that sports keeps on coming back over and over again to get athletes who have the influence, the platform, to share something that can truly make a difference.
0: Well this is great because Jason and I talked about this a little bit earlier and I think we've, you know, you athletes, in terms of controlling your brand, right, and think about the reach that you have, whether it's through social media and how you can quickly go right to your fan base, what's, so many questions. What's your responsibility, whether it's Hong Kong protests or some other injustices that are going on? Because you're seeing a lot of tensions between team owners, between leagues, and between players. Tell me about that balance and how tricky it is.
3: Oh, I think that also depends upon the latitude of your employer. There you go. Uh, You have to understand, prime example... Well, do
0: the leagues have a lot of latitude as your employer? Uh, yeah, or the team I owners? Mean,
3: but I mean for every action, there's a reaction. There are repercussions for what you decide to stand for. I.e. Calor Kaepernick, I understand that's a bigger issue that we can tap into. Uh, but I have the same issue all the time with ESPN, obviously. Um, look, ESPN is own, it's a parent company, is Disney, obviously with Bob Iger. And you have to understand for certain things, if you tread upon certain things that the company mandates that they don't want you to tap into, there will be repercussions for that. So. I think there is a responsibility to a degree, but you have to understand what the sacrifices are. And I think that's a huge statement for a lot of younger athletes, because I, look, we just, the platform is there. We can talk about anything that we want, whenever we want to talk about that. That's a gift, but with that gift comes responsibility to understand there are repercussions if you decide to go against the grain of what your employer deems not important, no?
0: Well, I want you guys to weigh in, because I do wonder now that you run businesses, do you understand that other side?
2: Yeah, so on the, on the business side of the house, what's been really interesting as we've seen this startup economy proliferate, call it like the Shark, the shark Tank era, uh, the cost to start a business has never been better, and founders are equity rich and cash poor. Their business goals are to acquire customers. The best way to acquire a customer is to go direct to that customer, not out of home in your marketing. Flip side, you have athletes who for a long time have been cash rich and equity poor. So there's a natural match. Then with the evolution of social media, athletes now can go for the first time direct to consumer. Athletes haven't become all of a sudden these celebrities that didn't have the same pop 30, 40, 50 years ago. Think Joe Namath, think Muhammad Ali, think Michael Jordan. What we have now is social, and we have that access to our audience whenever we want. It's not when linear media affords us that opportunity. So if you take the two trends and you marry them, that's why a lot of athletes now are working with founders of startups, and a lot of founders of startups are looking to touch athletes because of that direct-to-consumer, the work ethic, the critical thinking, the creativity, but it's a natural marriage. And I think that's why in particular, athletes are looking at early stage investments. Um, If we had sizable checks and you're looking with athletes that are now being LPs of larger private equity funds, then you can maybe de-risk your portfolio and invest in a later stage business. But I think because of social media and new tech, athletes building scalable audiences that they can access authentically, and that being the missing piece for a lot of leveraged uh, startups, that's where we're seeing a lot of connection.
5: I think it's is absolutely amazing opportunity for athletes and for brands with social media, but it's also a very dangerous opportunity for athletes and their brands with social media. And we've seen so many great athletes crash and burn because they couldn't stop the Twitter fingers and because they couldn't post too much of their life and because they felt like sharing and being transparent their true self was the best way to go you know would be just that but it wasn't it actually could ruin a 10 15 year career like that so it's very important to train these get these kids at a young age even high school because we're going back and looking at what you tweeted in high school we're going back to see what you said when, when you were you know a young dumb kid and if you have statements that are too strong, people will hold that against you and will mess with your money.
3: Well, that's what's happening though right now. You have a lot of kids who I know in the basketball space who are 13, 14, 15 years old that have 450,000 people that follow them on Instagram. So I think right now, the more that we have informative conversations like this, these kids are understanding from a lot earlier of an age because Paul, Paul is the end product of something that's great, right? It's, revolu- it's, revolution, uh, it's, it's the way, it's revolution of athletes in the way we think today. And now, but I think when you have kids who are 12 years old that are seeing the business of their brand and seeing their brand being monetized and exposed and having access, it just gives you a different mindset at an earlier age.
4: Yeah, I think that the one thing after you see how social media has affected the game and how fast that it has sped up the messaging of the teams and what happens with the team that coexists with the athlete athletes have to understand that the responsibility of social media is placed at the premium of the level that they're playing. And if they wanna make it to the premium level, they have to understand that at a young age, they have to start at a premium level to tell stories. And that's one thing that as an athlete growing up in social media, You know, when I came out, I came out as Instagram started to trend. Everybody was still on Facebook. And as Instagram started to trend up, you see sponsors and you see the the intermingle of what, you know, what athletes want to say versus what they want to do. And and they need to recognize that if you want to make it to this premium stage at a young age, that's exactly what the coaches, the owners, the front office, that everybody is paying attention to.
0: I get it, it's being responsible, but I do wonder about, you guys know you have this incredible platform for being social agents of change, and I mean, Muhammad Ali Ali did it, you know, Arthur Ashe, I mean, these are people who went out on a limb, and, and through social media you can do it, and I do wonder, is that your responsibility to help push for those changes?
4: It is. It is a responsibility. Um, just like I relate to personal experience, I was on the Eagles when we had the Player Coalition, dealing with specifically Colin Kaepernick, and dealing with the, the things that happened with Eric Reed. It's a responsibility to properly ex- explain and tell the true message. That you know that will affect and provide the most positive light and what is actually really going on. There are so many things that change and evolve around the game of sports and in social media as soon as you implement your message it can have a ripple effect that goes throughout the entire sports entertainment world and as startups and different companies get involved in it and people are starting to express express themselves and they're starting to involve themselves in different type of technologies and, and able to tell these more fluid stories they need to understand that the fans are able to access them and they're able to interpret these things in a way fluid manner and, ab- and, a- and able to interpret them and able to use them against them or for them. So,
3: I, I think one of the aspects that sometimes becomes missed is the opportunity of collaboration. So, the way I would look at something is if I wanted to make a statement, since there is that one degree of separation with the likes of venture capitalists or a BaBai or guys like that, reaching out to those individuals and saying, let's talk through the pros and cons of what I want my statement to be. What effect does this have on the entity I currently work for? And I want the same from my employees. Hey, if there's something that you want to make, okay, let's talk about what the repercussions of those actions could be. But I think collaboration is something that we need to start having more conversations about. Instead of just, I think sometimes the social media becomes knee jerk. I have to to do this right now in front of everybody. Make my statement without even thinking about what your statement is going to be. Right. and understanding with the words that you say. Just a little bit. I mean, look, I I had, in real time, I had to process a guy that was a mentor to me passing away. It was raw, it was very emotional for me. I cursed on TV. You're
0: talking about Kobe.
3: Yes, I cursed on TV. Walking away from that experience, being emotional, I wonder what it would have been like, and I understand that everybody else appreciated that raw emotion, but I also have a wife and I have a child. That is my livelihood. And I have to think, as soon as I walked off that set, My job is in jeopardy because of what I did, to a degree. Um, It comes along with the territory. That's part of the responsibility as well.
0: Um, We've only got a couple more minutes, and I just wanted to wrap up. Um, If you could, I know I hate these kind of questions, but you guys are a pretty amazing group up here. If you could sit down with one person right now, talk to them about your business, pick their brains, just briefly, who would it be and why? I only yeah, got so two minutes and 15 seconds. Jay, go ahead.
3: Are you put me on the spot? Yeah, I, I am. I um, actually got a chance to spend some time with him. He's one of the, the backers of Paul's company, Joe and Clara Sy. I Just think. Uh, yeah, I think. Alibaba. Yeah, seeing how they manage Alibaba, seeing how they originated that, how they've scaled that business to the degree what the future of that vertical is for them. Uh, I, I find it so intriguing because you talk about social responsibility. Right. Yes. Um,
0: Perfect person to talk to.
3: And that becomes a challenge.
2: Paul, you're next. We've got to be quick. So one, uh, one person, uh, I could probably list off a dozen.
0: I know you could. <laughs> um, Pick one.
2: So I, 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 would, I would say Alive, I would say Bob Iger. I, I haven't had a chance to meet Mr. Iger, uh, but I think the complexity of the Walt Disney business, from events to media, uh, it, it probably mirrors the way we think about the P.O.L. Uh, we think about us as a media company, that lacrosse is the vehicle of which we're building, and the livelihood of our players, uh, but how do we distribute that product in Walt Disney Company has done a terrific job.
0: Great at integrating so many platforms. 20 seconds, 25 seconds.
4: Uh, yeah, that's... <laughs> <pressure>. <laughs> yeah.
0: They ate up your time. I got right. an easy
4: one. I can go. <laughs> yeah, quick, I would say... Uh, you Someone similar to what I'm involved with, like a Steve Jobs in an entertainment, a uh, Jimmy Iovine or Agreed. a Jay-Z because of how they scale, what they've been able to build, and how to connect. And entertainment and sports is what we do. We're entertainers, you know, we're athletes, and we're involved in this sports tech. So the intertwine of those two, and like I don't know if you're familiar with the movie The Defiant Ones, seeing how they built that conglomerate and able to satisfy with music, entertainment, and sports, and tech with Steve Jobs, that'll be. This is a
0: great bunch of people. One last
4: one. um, My former team owner, uh,
5: Arthur Blank, the fact that he's been able to do so much in the sports space and in the business space and merge that together. It's been amazing uh, what he's accomplished.
0: All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, Incredible panel and I really appreciate it. Thank you. We have another speaker and we want to get to, our next speaker really embodies the American dream. At the age of five years old, she was left in an orphanage in Seoul today She's one of the most powerful women in sports, Kim Pagula, co-owner of the Buffalo Bills, Buffalo Sabres, here to talk about her story and really just what it's like to be an owner in an environment, a very dynamic environment, that is changing constantly. So, thank you so much. We want to talk about a lot of things. One of the questions I want to ask you, and forgive me, but what's it like being a very successful woman in a sport that is
6: so dominated by men, it's it's awesome. I, I'm sorry, I'm not. <laughs> is it really lie. all awesome? I'm not trying to make anyone jealous, but um, I have the best job in the world. I, you know what, I, this is, you know, it, there's a lot of challenges, of course, but I can tell you, just I'm having so much fun. I love. Was there what ever I do. any moment
0: though where they're like, Oh, Kim, what does your husband think about this?
6: Oh um, no, you know what, my my. Um, my husband and I—we've been married for about 27 years, and uh, he has been a great partner of mine. And I remember when he, uh, when we talked about um, the bid coming up to buy the bills, he's like him, like I, like you got to get on board because I can't do this, and you know, without without you, and, I, and certainly that. Um, so he's always been my biggest supporter, and I've been very grateful. But then at the same time, he's like, all right. You go do it. <laughs> so he's like, "It's great to have the support, but then you realize you're the one doing all the work." <laughs> Not always, but that's what it feels but sometimes. Like sometimes. But it, it's great being an owner, uh, being a female in football. Um, like I said, I just I'm so blessed, and I love I love it every day.
1: And so, what's the big challenge for you? Swear, I'm going to use I'm going to use your mic. <laughs> So what's the big challenge for you right now in, in 2020? Obviously a lot of focus this weekend because it is the Super Bowl. It's a good time to sort of take stock of where you are as right. an owner. What's number one on your
7: list?
6: You know, really, we would not be here without our players and, the, and our fans. And so every year, regardless of our, our wins, our losses, um, every year is a new challenge because you, I mean, the 49ers were, you know, they were la- um, almost one of the worst teams last year, and this year they're in the big game. And so every year is different, and you can't always like, count on what you did right uh, or what you did wrong. Um, but I, the, just the, the fan base, um, trying to re-engage with them, all the new technology that comes through, you got new players. Um, you know, the struggles that any business have when you don't know what it is. So I think that's really it is, just how do we keep engaging our fans? How do we keep building on what we have? It's
0: how do you do just- that? Because we, you know, we've had some conversations and planning for this. Jason and I talk about it with our own families. That there is so much, um, and I think George Pine used this expression, like competing for some mind space. So how do you, you want, you know, you want the fans? At the games, but you also want to keep them engaged when they're away. So how do
6: you compete
0: with so much that's out there? Well,
6: yeah, and we found that, you know, we used to think that you could kind of compete with another club. Or you're competing against another league, you know, basketball, hockey, whatever it is. Um, But we found that we're really competing for people's time and the convenience because they're able to do, you know, on their phone and get a ride to wherever they want to go they can have groceries delivered right to right to your door and so people are now expecting out of their experience all the ease and convenience that they're getting from all these other industries that you know before we didn't think were our competitors um, but certainly now now they are because they want that same level of expectations for um, our fans do
1: and kim how do you create a club and create sort of an ethos around the club that's reflective of the city? I mean, Buffalo is is an American yeah. city in so many ways, for good and bad, right. uh, especially now wow. in 2020. So what is it about you know the team that reflects the city?
6: Well, you know what, I really do. There's, um, you know, sometimes I feel like we can't, as a club and the league, sometimes they have a lot of rules, right? And of course, you know, we gotta play within those rules, but I think that authenticity that, you know, we, we talk about a lot, um, I think, that, you have to really embrace that. So um, in Buffalo, we have this thing called Bill's Mafia. It was not started by the club. In fact, we kind of really shied away from it because we're like, oh, that's kind of like a negative undertones. We're not, you know, not that kind of family. Um, and so, but. But that's what the fans like. felt like. They just embraced it as their own. And now we're like, no, let's partner with that. Let's embrace with that um, because that's who we are. So really understanding our, our core fan, who we are, and then allowing them organically, naturally, to help us really um, be who we are as a team. And, and if you, any of our players, you'll see there'll be, like, a shout-out to Bill's Mafia. Like, they get it, too. They feel it.
1: All right, uh, for our Bloomberg Business Week listeners tuning in uh, around the country, we're here in Miami uh, talking to Kim Pagula. She is the President and CEO of Pagula Sports and Entertainment, owner and President of the Buffalo Bills and the Buffalo Sabres, uh, we should point out.
0: So one thing I want to ask you is, you are thinking about, and it's some of the conversations we've been having here up on stage, is that... You want to think about your existing maybe older fan base, right, who want to interact with the game and the team a certain way, and then you got your younger consumer who you also want to engage because you want to have them around for decades to come. How do you balance that as a team owner? You know, you've got to think about resources and so on and so forth.
6: I, I think that is is so hard. I mean, that is one of, you asked me earlier about one of the struggles, and I think that truly is. It's the best thing about sports like our fan base is anyone from like you know a new baby that's got their like my first game shirt and then i've got you know people that like 100 years celebrating their 100th birthday at a football game and so how do you cover that whole i mean it's the best thing like to have that fan base um that spans so many generations um but it, it presents a lot of challenges
0: well speaking of challenges we just had four you know Incredibly successful athletes who have moved on in some ways, you know, co-founding businesses, co-founding a league, some still playing. We talked a lot about the role of social media, players using social media, managing their own brands. How do you as a team owner... Kind of get your hands around that. What's your view on that? Um, well,
6: no, I I'm very a big proponent of our players having a voice in a brand because I do think, like I said, they are representing your team, and the players aren't coming to see me; they're coming to see our players, and I think there's such power that they can that they have um, with the influence, and and if we can help them, so we have a, a, a program. The league has done a, a much better job in the recent years of allowing for that, and so we have a program where. We actually, will because you know, the players on game day, like they're supposed to be focusing on the game, but they've got fans, they got uh, family, they want to have fun, and so we like provide extra videographers, extra camera crew, extra people that will take pictures and we'll send it to them and say, hey, we're not using this. Why don't you can share it with your fans or you can share it with your family? You can do whatever you want with them um, because it's. Social media is time consuming. Oh my goodness, I have a Twitter account and I got an Instagram and it's like, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. And now we're on TikTok, right? right? So like you gotta do the Facebook for your older generation now. Then you gotta do TikTok which are completely, and everything in between. It's a lot, it really so is. So Kim,
1: I wanna talk a little bit about hockey in a minute and some of the opportunities that you see not only in hockey but as you think about the Northern audience. We talked yeah. a little bit yeah. about this backstage. But before we do that, I, I wanna, bring up a conversation that Carol and I had yesterday with Jerome Bettis, uh, the bus, well known yeah. to this audience, uh, about diversity in hiring at the top yeah. levels. As an owner, obviously, you are deeply involved in all of these discussions, not just for your own team, but across the league. What does the league need to do to bring more diversity yeah. to the higher ranks?
6: Uh, you know, I, I believe that I'll, a lot of what we really need to do is really at the grassroots. So and, and there's been some great strides, as we talked about, with an extension of the Rooney Rule, but you know, now trying to get that with coordinators and trying to build that pipeline. But you know, it's got to start at such a young age, right? And, but we're getting where there's, there, those young girls or guys or kids, they're able to see other people of diverse backgrounds, colors, uh, religions in higher places. Um, but there's just not enough of them, right? Yeah. But, it's, but at least we need to get that, um, that pipeline in and start at a grassroots level. It just, the numbers just aren't there. So how do you get the numbers
0: up? And I think about the tech community facing crisis because they don't have the workers either, boys, girls, going through a STEM education. So they have actively created programs at high schools and so on and so forth. How active do you think the league needs to be team owners to creating programs like that?
6: So, I mean, I know from a business standpoint, you know, uh, the entry level, w- in Buffalo, our biggest struggle is that nobody wants to leave, right? So, we don't have a lot of turnovers, so we don't have In the a organization? Lot of, in the organization, I mean, to, you know, it's a small community, very family-oriented, so people have grown up in the same job for many, many years, so we don't have a lot of turnover, so um, that's been a little bit hard. So, we try to bring in people from the, the interns, the entry level to at least give them some, some experience. Um, I have talked to Syracuse University. My son goes to Syracuse. They have a great sports management program. Yeah. Um, they have a, um, a, a, a program for women. Um, I forgot the name of it now, but I uh, forgot the name of it now. But anyways, um, and so I come and speak with them as well. And um, they just, you know, like there is such a, a want. I mean, they want to be participating, they want right. to be a part of it. Um, and I think it's just showing more of them that, you know, this is a career path you can choose at a young age.
1: And so let's talk about expansion, expanding the audience, you know, Buffalo, and, and this is not a knock, not one of the fastest growing cities yeah, in America, yes, yeah, unfortunately, a yeah, yeah, right. little chilly, um, and yet, There's a big population around you. You know, you're the only sort of big football team for miles around. And not just a U.S. audience, but we were talking with our Canadian friend, Eric Schatzker, backstage. Toronto could be a a place for expansion. Is that on your mind?
6: Well, I have to be careful because, like, Toronto is like a a really bad word in Buffalo, (laughs) right? Um, From a hockey perspective. Yes. Well, from a hockey perspective, and then when um, my husband and I were, um, you know, in the midst of purchasing, we were competing with... Donald Trump, and we were competing with John Bon Jovi and and a Toronto contingent. So we, um, oh,
0: it was right. it was crazy
6: to think. We're Who was the hardest that?
0: competitor? Was it Trump or Bon Jovi?
6: Uh, I think, well, no. As it was, <laughs> I'm gonna say it was it was Toronto by far. Okay. It, was ter- okay. it was Toronto. So there was always the fear that the team would move. Yeah. Um, so we kind of shied away from that, knowing how the fan base felt. But um, but they are, you know what? They love. They love football as well and obviously they have the CFL um, so they're familiar with football they love the NFL we're so close to them um, so yeah so we need to get that's gonna be a priority of ours um, football as you know you know we've gone to London games we got two uh, yeah. two stadiums in London um, we played in New, um, Mexico City so you know we want to try to make the game a lot more global and the, the league is doing a big push for that and so we're gonna like I said put forth our efforts in Toronto it's our neighborhood, it's our backyard. And I'm, I I, li- I like to say I'm part Canadian because when I was adopted, like you said, yeah. my uh, my family uh, came from Canada, so they were Canadians by heart. And of course, in hockey, we always play the Canadian na- National Anthem right. at every game. Um, so I feel like I'm part Canadian, so it, it is definitely <laughs> a priority for me because it's, it's a huge market up there.
0: Curious about when you look out at, at the next, I don't know, what, what kind of, um, I feel like, Lane, do you feel like you feel comfortable about making commitments when it comes to building out the team more or doing things in terms of fan engagement? Do you have five years of visibility? I mean, there's so many technologies that people are talking about, whether it's AR, whether it's VR, 5G, and how that's going to impact the fan experience. You know, what kind of visibility do you feel like where you can make commitments to do things for the future?
6: Well, so, like I said, we do have a stadium lease that is going to be expiring soon, so all those things that you just talked about are certainly foremost in our mind. But I truly believe, you know, my husband and I, we've only owned the team for five years, right? Right. And this is the first year, though, so what I'm really focusing on now is really making our business in kind of our own, um, in our own mold. So we had they one owner before us, uh, Mr. Wilson, who had uh, passed away. And so you can imagine that there was, you know, he bought the team for $25,000, right? And, um, and so he, our, our goals and our right? needs, right, are, are vastly different from, from his. And so I think for me, the priority really is, is really to understand the business to create it and shape it into kind of how our needs for our family, how do we sustain it long-term? And then I think once we get that really where we need to be, then all this stuff is easier to put in, right? Um, because it is so ever-changing. And, um, but if we don't don't have that core base, that foundation of business, um, I think that's, you know, it's all that stuff is gonna be just so much harder to navigate. So that's where I'm really focusing my time right now on the leadership, on, on setting up our business and practices, um, just trying to set us up for, uh, I've got three kids, uh, so trying to set them up for their future.
1: Well, and, and I believe one of your daughters is a professional tennis yes. player, yeah, right? Uh-huh. And so you are seeing lots of different sports, both as a parent as, and as an owner. As you think about the popularity of sports going forward, the NFL obviously remains number one. Can it stay that way? I mean, with all of this competition, oh,
6: yeah, no. I, I like I said, I, I love the game, and I think the, the National Football League has done a wonderful job of growing the sport. Um, but it is our players, and it is our fan base. So I think when if we keep investing in those two areas, either as a club or as a league, that we're gonna we're gonna get the return from there. Um, this past year, we opened up a new sports uh, performance center. You know, back there, you'd be like, hey, these guys, you know, go go do 50 reps, you know, or 50 squats. You know, you're just like lifting weights. Well, now we've got like cryotherapy chambers and we've got sleep pods and floating tanks and all these like very things that really are to help our players really not, you know, step away from the game, help them and make their career last longer, um, help them recover quicker, prevent injuries. And that's a huge component. And, and like I said, every club and every team owner is making those types of investments in the players. Um, on top of all you know the normal uh, course of the day, and then like I said, and then the technology part for our right. fan base, if we keep investing in those two areas that 's where we 're going to be able to sustain the growth.
1: Well, and I want to pick up on something you said a minute ago about you, know, you and your husband buying the team you know, from Mr. Wilson. That was obviously a seminal moment for that franchise, yeah. but it 's also representative of a change in ownership that we 're starting to see across the league especially as you talk with your fellow quote unquote new owners mm-hmm. what's different about them you know what's different about this sort of new cohort of that's coming in, in-
6: You know, I I would say, um, first of all, there is a lot more diversity. I certainly think that if you go, not just speaking for myself, but there has been a lot of new female owners that even just in the five years I've been in the league um, are now sitting in in the room, uh, per se. A lot of second-generational families now, you know, daughters and sons are going through um, and becoming new owners. And I think a lot of them are, they grew up in the business, right? So, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, say Jerry Jones, you know, he started... His, you know he started the, bought the uh, Dallas Cowboys um, but now his kids are growing up in it so I think it's a much more engaged ownership um, like I said I'm, I'm new uh, but I like to think I'm young and hard and you know my kids will grow up too but I think that's the difference in the ownership now even when there's a lot of changes but there's also like even a lot of changes within um, it's that next generation that has really grown up and it's not the original owner anymore um, and it's a lot of fun. I think we're, it's just developed a new kind of, um, I think, bond. You know, like, you know, we appreciate the, the stories from before, but like, we all kind of start making our own relationships yeah, and stories. Yeah. Well,
0: there's some benefits, right? We know of diversity of thought. So if you're bringing in some more women or people from different backgrounds, right? Yeah. In terms of what it brings to the league.
6: Right. Yes. And. So, what was the question? The, no, no, no. I'm just it, saying,
0: you know, we, we see all the research that's been done about having kind of a diverse board yes, and so on yes. and so forth. So, you think it, about it the is. benefits that that can do oh, for the league. No,
6: it does. And you know what? I, I love, a lot of the the club's owners are actually very family based. And I, that's what I do love about the league. There's a lot of family that are, um, are part of it because my husband and I like we are very 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 different but together we like we work it, like we like it's great. what he's good in I'm not as good in what I'm good in he doesn't want to do so it, <laughs> it it makes it, it work so I think that's really an that advantage how we are. Yeah, there you go. so we have to ask you we've been
0: asking um, a lot of the folks up here on the stage Sunday's game the Chiefs or the 49ers Have
6: you thought about oh this? Oh my gosh, this is like on the record, so I, I mean, I don't want to <laughs> offend either either family. So I'm just happy the Patriots are not in it because they are in our division, yeah. and I've, we've had to play them. <laughs> you might. We've had to play them for you know almost nineteen years in our division. So um, so I'm happy to see another fan base get the opportunity if it's not us. All right, one last question.
1: Well, I was what just going to say. I mean, you also have the the notion of you know a really young quarterback from the AFC and Patrick Mahomes yeah. who has really re-energized. It feels like that part of the the it bracket is. as a It, it were. is. You
6: know, so our our quarterback Josh Allen is only uh, has two seasons under him. Patrick Mahomes, even you know. Um, you saw um, Lamar Jackson. So all these young quarterbacks are really um, are the, ne- the next wave level you know of, of excitement and, right. fan- and for our fans and that's really exciting to see to be a part of that um, because like I said, that's, that's our futures our players and our fans.
0: Yeah, you definitely see this era. All right, one last question. if you had to pick one priority for yourself as a team owner over the next few years, what would it be?
6: One priority, oh probably to enjoy the game more. I know. You, you would think that uh, the game would be like the most exciting. It's so stressful for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I need to learn how to enjoy the game. Win or lose, I need to learn how to enjoy it. A
0: little tailgating, a little beer yes, might yes. help. I,
6: I, I have done that on occasion, but I got to do it more often because, like I said, I'm so fortunate, so lucky. Best job in the world. I got to enjoy it, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Kim, thank you, so, right. much. Thank you really so much.
0: Really appreciate it. Appreciate Thanks, everybody.
1: And for those of you listening on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Business Week, I'm speaking with John Skipper of Jazone, formerly of ESPN. And it's funny, too, and and this is right in your wheelhouse, you know, uh, Carol and I spent the last couple days broadcasting from Radio Row, Uh and we were talking with Brian Billick about the idea that two years ago, you know, you were starting to hear a pretty consistent death knell for professional football. Uh Let me tell you, look around Miami Beach, Convention Center, you would not feel that uh, today. What happened with football, in your estimation, from a consumer, from a fan, from a business perspective?
7: Look, I've never thought there was a death knell for the NFL. The NFL's popularity uh, has done nothing but rise. There have been times and years in which the prime time broadcast ratings have declined a little bit or gone up a little bit but they do a spectacular job of figuring out how to create new packages. I don't think the total audience, if you aggregate it, it has ever gone down. I don't think anything's happened with football, and it's remarkably resilient in the face of uh, some level of controversies, concerns about uh, health and safety of the players. The league has responded. Uh, I think fans love the game. There's something uniquely – Uh, American about it uh, which is spectacular and I don't see any scenario under which the NFL doesn't continue to be the most popular league in the United States yeah it's amazing I mean the the resilience you're exactly right
1: all right so let's talk a little bit about the business at hand and and for those uh, listening to us on Bloomberg Radio Bloomberg Business Week. I'm sitting here with John Skipper here in Miami uh, from from the DAZN, from DAZN, you are the chairman of DAZN and also the former president of ESPN. Of course, streaming, we gotta talk about it and talk about it in the context of the history of media. Is this one of, if not the biggest inflection point that you've seen in your career in terms of media and sports?
7: Well, in my career, I mean, it was an extraordinary inflection point when you went from a paucity of sports on broadcast, right? They did, the broadcast networks did less than a 1,000 hours a year of television. Uh, In my last year, uh, as president of ESPN, we did 90,000 hours, Um, so that was a, an inflection point of availability of right. content to fans.
1: And that was cable really that created that,
7: right. right? Yeah. And it was of course also a transition from an over-the-air broadcast signal to a right more stable connection, whether it be satellite or coaxial cable. But this inflection point, which is moving from pay television to over-the-top streaming, is going to be just as profound. I mean, look, it's already happened in music. And look how profound that is instead of going to your tower records and bringing home a sack full of vinyl you pay a very small amount of money and have all the music or 83 percent i just made the number up of all the music in the world available to you on your smartphone that's a spectacular consumer experience change the business model you now have we're right in the middle of the movement of general entertainment to over-the-top streaming, and all you read about every day is the introduction of Disney Plus, here comes the new Peacock, what what is the next series of content on Apple TV, what's HBO Max going to look like, what is Amazon going to do, what is Facebook going to do. It's a remarkable change. Over time, it's a better value to the consumer, it unbundles the bundle. Which doesn't mean you won't have a re-aggregation of over-the-top content, you will. And it also provides advantages in more volume. You're going to go now from 1,000 hours to 90,000 hours to 2 million hours, and pretty much everything is going to be available. You're going to be able to pick and choose more, and then you have the advantage of interactivity, two-way communication, which will allow people to have personalized experiences, betting, fantasy, gamification, chat rooms and and uh, conversations happening during the broadcast. So it's a profound change and a better consumer experience. The question is, what happens to the business models? Right,
1: it, okay, so let's talk, I mean, let's get into it because everything you said sounds awesome, sounds amazing, especially from a consumer perspective, and yet, you know the joke that people will sit down to try and watch a movie on a Friday night, and they'll spend an hour just on Netflix, and by the time they decide what they're gonna watch, it's time to go to bed. You know what Uh I mean, that that sort Uh of paralysis.
7: I'm more efficient than that.
1: (laughs) Well, you're a more efficient guy Uh in general, but, you know, and that's just with a couple of platforms. Some of the things you've talked about haven't even fully rolled out yet. How is a consumer to make sense of what they're gonna put their dollars to?
7: Um, I I don't actually know that this is literally what happens, but I think it's instructive to think about a family sitting around the dinner table and deciding what they're going to buy, and the winners are going to be those people who are the first choice, or the second choice, or the third choice, because not many people are going to subscribe to more than five or six services which by the way may still include a light aggregated pay tv bundle right but they're gonna add netflix i mean netflix is fairly ubiquitous now within a certain socioeconomic group of people in the united states even if you go to a place um if you go to brazil you know the plurality of homes at a certain socioeconomic level and above all have Netflix. They have it in Canada. They, you know, they're going to have it in India and everywhere else. So the fight now is between HBO Max and Peacock and yeah. Disney and Apple and Amazon Prime for where are they in the lineup of which services people are going to choose. We are sports only so we have to work our way into that consideration set. We have a very simple way to do that. That does not mean that it is trivial to execute, but we know from our experience in Germany, Japan, Italy, that if you have first tier sports content, you are going to make the cut. Right. In Italy, we have Serie A, which means if you're a Juventus fan, Three out of every 10 Juventus games are owned as zone. It's the only way to watch them. We have a very large number of subscribers in Italy. Uh, same thing in Japan, where we have the J League football, uh, soccer, and we have Japanese baseball. So we have a large business in Japan. We uh, have, had, we have Bundes, some Bundesliga games in Germany. We've got a high business. It's easy to do. Yeah. It is not inexpensive. The technology is complex. The reason music happened is audio is easier to stream than video. The reason entertainment happens before sports is because archived entertainment that sits at the head end of uh, in the cloud is easier to you can pull, just pull down. It down. Yeah. The hardest thing to do is we're going to have a live game and we're going to produce that and deliver it to you at the same time as everybody else. Uh, last year, we did 100, more than 100 games, events, in which we had an audience of over a million people watching the same thing at one time. I do not think anybody else in the world has had that experience, uh, and that is the complexity of that is why this will happen over a certain period of time. It's funny, I was just talking to somebody who said, when's the Super Bowl going to be on mm-hmm. um, uh, over the top? The Super Bowl might be very quickly over the top as a choice. Right. Exclusively over exclusively, the top? Yeah. That's, it, you couldn't do it right now. You just couldn't. It wouldn't be stable. It wouldn't right. be a good experience. But if 5 million people wanted to do it because they weren't in front of, the, the, you know, they weren't at home or they didn't have a, Pay TV subscription, although Super Bowl I know is on broadcast. Um, Though most people get broadcast through pay TV, uh, that could certainly be a compliment, which I would urge the NFL to think about in their next round of deals.
1: Well, let's talk about that very point because for a long time, media rights when it comes to sports have been, and keep me honest here, exclusive. Right? I mean, and you don't have so much of these sort of complementary situations. Is that changing? Is it changing fast?
7: Well, it's interesting. It depends on where you're talking about. Um, At ESPN, our point of view was it is not acceptable to bifurcate the linear stream and the over the top. Right. Of course, the NFL did that on Thursday night. Yes. When they sold a linear stream to Fox, and they sold an over-the-top stream to Amazon. Amazon. Right. So I think you will see some uh, positioning and struggle, and and I think some leagues will try to bifurcate the two. Yeah. Now I'll tell you something ironic. That while I just said that, our per- point of view at at the Zone is that we want exclusive content. We may, in certain cases, be willing to be non-exclusive i take the Super Bowl night exclusively. Uh, right. But when we bought the Serie A rights in Italy or the Japanese baseball rights, we bought them exclusively. They are not for... It's okay if you want to get your pay TV subscription. We want to move people over. We want a transformation. We don't want to be a complementary service. Right. And for those of you listening on
1: Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Business Week, I'm speaking with John Skipper of Zone, formerly of ESPN. So as you think about sort of sport by sport. You guys have a really nice footprint in boxing, obviously here in the United States. You talked about some of your soccer slash football uh, rights overseas. What's the next big growth area for you that takes zone to the next level?
7: Look, it is, you want to, what you need to do to build a subscription service, and we're in nine countries on uh, four continents. We're in Brazil, we're in Spain, we're in Italy, we're in the United States, we're in Canada. We're in Austria, Switzerland, Germany. You gotta start with something that matters, right? Here we started with Saul Alvarez, Canelo. He matters, so you can move people over. You gotta start, um, in Canada we have a Sunday ticket. Uh, You gotta start with something that matters. You gotta build around it, so that people, well, you can retain their subscription, you can make sure they're there all the year, and that they watch more. If we can get people to watch five events in a month, doesn't matter. Five basketball games, five baseball games, it's almost certain that they'll stay with us the next month. So you got to build out. So that's the threshold is five. Well, four is a threshold, take. just not for 80%. Yeah, yeah right. So, got it. And then you got to build some library content, right? Ultimately, you're going to have to build some library content. You start with primary sports. Then you add secondary, tertiary sports rights, and then you add archival content uh, beyond it to build the service. Yeah,
1: And so, you know, one of the themes that we've been talking about throughout the day is this idea of the empowered player, you know, athletes really owning their own content, their own brands. How does that play into
7: this new streaming world? Well, look, the, the beauty of streaming is you have infinite capacity. So the extent that athletes... Want to do programming around the games they play, they want to do behind the scenes. We have the infinite capacity to show that. We do a fair amount of that. Yeah. And, you know, we do doc, uh, documentary. Uh, the football season in Europe, you know, runs basically 10 months. So in those two months between, we run documentary product about those leagues to keep people for those two months. Um, so I think the empowered player has a much, easier platform on over-the-top service. Do you have a take
1: that you can share about who the most forward-thinking leagues are around the world? Who's most progressive when it comes to this new media world?
7: Look, I would start by saying that I don't think there's any league that is not believed that they need to play in this, that they're going to need to understand it. They're going to need to be at the forefront of it. you know, you, you, uh, I always tip my hat to the NBA. They understand that being first, being technologically forward is a good idea. But look, the NFL on Thursday night right now is doing something yeah. almost nobody else is doing. When you're around the world, um, the, fo- the major football associations and leagues are there on this. Yeah. Uh, I cannot confirm the exact details. But the Champions League, controlled by UEFA in Germany, is going to be next year available solely on over-the-top services. Right. And so you've got to look at that. That's the second most important right. It's the equivalent of moving um, the NBA or all of college football to, uh, to an over-the-top service, right. which would be astonishing. Right and transformational in the United States. I don't think, by the way, that's getting ready to happen. Right. Uh, but in a, in other markets around the world, and our business is 90% outside the United States. We are the, the leading global, over-the-top, pure-play, sports streaming service in the world. And in most of the world, there are not, you, you can count them, right? One, two, three, four, five. Four broadcast networks one two three big pay tv providers right one two three four big technological companies in most of the world there's an over the air there's one or two players in pay tv right so your ability to move faster is more pronounced right. there than it is in the united states which is why we're concentrating to a large extent on The rest of the world, R O W, rest of the world.
1: Uh, And for more on that Champions uh, League conversation, you can read Bloomberg, and you'll get some details around that. Um, I do got. I would
7: suggest that Bloomberg has it right. (laughs) I can't confirm anything, but they have it right.
1: All right, there you go. On many things. Um, So, when it comes to your job now, we've only got a few minutes left. What have you learned so far? You've seen so much over the course of your career. This is certainly a new adventure. What has jumped out to you when you like go to a cocktail party or a dinner party? Like, what are you saying to people? That's that sort of aha moment for you working
7: at zone? Look, it's it's uh, it's not many of you have experienced it, right? But it is astonishingly stimulating and fun to do something different. Uh, I'm aware of the irony, but it's also quite fun of having worked at by far the most important participant in the pay TV universe, to sort of look, flip the mirror and look at exactly the opposite, which is to be the uh, disruptor, the challenger, is really fun. Yeah. Uh, Again, I liked both positions. I'm not suggesting one is better than the other, but that has been an aha moment that, gee, until you try it, uh, you kind of don't know. The other aha moment for me is just that we, um, we've had the... Op- is the global part of it, right? Yeah. It is really fun to do business in the world. Uh, uh, I'm a very proud American. But it is really fun to travel and see the rest of the world uh, and, and sort of get the stimulation that business is done differently. Regulatory is different. The broadband internet universe is different in different places, so to be in Spain and sort of understand what that's like. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I get to go to a lot of people, places people go on vacation- uh, For work. I'm working. <laughs> Somebody's paying for the room.
1: And so when you look back toward the United States, what have you learned about what either you can do differently at Dizone in the United States that hasn't been done before or that from a more structural perspective needs to be
7: done for the US to sort of keep up? Look, we what we're learning is how to deal with different kinds of broadband infrastructure, different currencies. We're also learning a lot. You heard me say, if you watch five five uh, games, you're unlikely to churn. That that will be true here. We're learning how to do archival material that complements the game. We're learning how to do interactive things. So all these things will serve us well. And it's if you're learning in, in, in Spain, You don't necessarily learn it under the Hawkeye of the media in the United States. There is no more intense media, uh, repertorial scrutiny and, uh, than there is here. And so it's, it's good to be able to try some of these things other places a little bit out of the, out of a shining light.
1: Uh, Is there a sport that's growing maybe faster than people anticipate? We all know about American football. We all know about football, global football. Is there something that's coming up that you've seen that maybe people aren't quite appreciating?
7: Look, the most important thing is it has to be local, right? This is exactly what Netflix learned. You've got to go in and do local language content. It's got to be relevant to a local audience. It is remarkable. Having been mostly uh, looking at this through an American lens for a long time, football is the universal sport, by which I mean soccer. I mean, around the rest of the world, it is half of what people care about. Some places, it's three quarters of what people care about. You go into Italy, Serie A is the NFL, the NBA, MLB, and NHL put together. Amazing. I mean, who knows, it's in Spain. It's La Liga. The second most popular sport in Spain, MotoGP, right? So it's interesting. In Germany, handball is really, really popular. Yeah. But it's the Bundesliga just sits on top of everything.
1: Soccer is the king. John Skipper, what a treat. Thank you so much for spending it's some time with It's been a great pleasure, me. Jason. Right. Thank Thanks. you. Thank Thanks. you, guys.